Hey. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yep. Yep. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me on. So first of all, my podcast is called, well, I'm Monica Nichols. Um, I've had this podcast for a couple of years now, but I kind of stopped because COVID hit and everything, you know, just went down the drain. But so originally I started it to talk about wildlife and everything, but I eventually want to expand and I'll probably have a couple musical guests on and stuff like that. So that would be a fun place to share, share stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so a little bit about myself. I, I first started, I think, in 2017, raising monarchs. That was the first time I ever saw a monarch caterpillar. Um, and my friend was raising them at the time. And so I gave her the caterpillars that I had and got to release them when they um, came out of their chrysalis. And then just got me hooked. And uh, I think I raised something like, I don't know, 70 or something. Yeah. yeah, that's awesome. And what about you? So, um, I'm Jamie, and I am a butterfly moth enthusiast. Um, I've been raising butterflies for about, I, I actually, I would say insect, spiders, everything. I love bugs. Um, but I've been raising butterflies specifically for about four years. Um, and I am a biology pre-veterinary science major as well. Um, and, and I started a lot like you, I started, um, I, I meant to start with monarchs, but, um, kind of the swallowtails happened at the same time. Um, my first season, they just showed up at, on my parsley plant and I didn't even know I had a host plant for them. And it was like, I was all gearing up for monarchs. So, um, it's just, it was a wonderful experience. And then I was hooked. Awesome. Well, so how do, I don't know how we want to start. I guess I'll start. Um, like I said, I started in right around 2017 with monarchs and, uh, I only had a simple pop-up enclosure and, a one of those bug cages that you use. Mm-hmm. And now, now I, I live on a farm in Connecticut, so but I don't have any official setups, so that's what I was using. And I'm I'm growing butterfly weed, which they absolutely adore. Um, I guess I found it to be really, really challenging. I mean, monarchs are, as you know, monarchs are very sensitive to everything, to anything in your house, pet, pesticides, chemicals. Yes. You know, everything. So you have to be really careful. They're very sensitive. Um, so I lost, I forget how many I lost, but I lost quite a few. Um, some just failed to thrive. I mean, they do that. Some just don't, just don't make it for whatever reason. Um, but I, at the end, I was able to release, I think, like 30, right around 30. Um, so, I mean, it was... It was overwhelming at times, but it was also worth it, you know, helping right. helping a um, threatened species, you know. Right. Now, in, in, in yes, actually, monarchs are not, and I, I kind of think this is in, important, they are not technically endangered yet. But yes, you are 100% right. And I think it's important that we say that on this podcast because... 
Um, I was one of the people who also thought, um, as a lot of people do, that monarchs are endangered. And um, actually, right now, monarchs are technically not endangered. They are, as you said, threatened. And it's important to know the difference. They are petitioned to be on the endangered list. Yes, absolutely. But um, they have not been... However, they... um, a qualified people, uh, qualified species to be technically endangered. They were petitioned for it, but it hasn't happened yet. Um, so although threatened, yes, but it is uh, very important that we say that because um, people kind of, what's important is there are actual butterfly species that are on the endangered list that are on the brink of extinction right now. And when people, you know, really dive hard into um, raising moths or butterflies and they do monarchs, which is kind of a, a good gateway, um, a, a gateway butterfly, I should say. They don't realize that th- they go so hard for monarchs and that is wonderful. But let's not forget all the other butterfly and moth species that are actually on the endangered list. Yeah. Threatened and endangered are two different, two different words. Exactly. And I think a lot of people use them interchangeably. Yes. It, it, so, it's like, not technically like, true. Threatened. Right. They're in right. trouble. I mean, they could become endangered. If nothing changes, they will Absolutely. become endangered. So it's important now to, right. to help prevent that. Yes. Which means yes. planting native plants. Planting plants that monarchs food on. Stop using pesticides. Stop spraying weed killer and all that stuff. Yes, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, Increase habitat. Plant more plants. Absolutely. Um, And and yes, and you know what? You don't have to be, you don't, you can say, well, monarchs are, are, might be really easy. And I don't, I don't know anything about the endangered, the ones that are technically endangered and stuff. That's cool. Look up the host plant for these endangered species and plant the host plants. Because the reason, one of the huge reasons why these actual moth and butterfly species are becoming, are on the endangered list is because their host plants are gone. They're, they're, they're not, they're not around. If they don't have the correct host plant, then they cannot lay eggs on there and their caterpillars cannot thrive because they do not have the host plant. So, you know, you don't have to, you can, you can be awesome and raise moths and raise monarchs, um, or, or swallowtails, which tend to be easier or, you know, like you said, moths humongously, but it is, it is essential. Like, you know, plant habitat, that totally helps. The uh, the wild blue, God, I don't know off the off off um the top of my head, but there's a a, a blue butterfly, a little blue bat, yeah, and like in an azure, an azure maybe. Um, I don't think it's the azure butterfly, but it it's like the it's like a blue. I think it starts with a K, um, but. Yeah, I mean, I'm just, I'm really glad you brought that up. I'm, I'm glad you said threatened because if there's an opportunity to clear that, I, and it's not just, it's not just someone who isn't a butterfly enthusiast. There are many butterfly enthusiasts that 
are raising hundreds and hundreds of monarchs every year because they believe that the monarch is actually endangered. And um, it's important to know the difference between threatened and endangered and how we can best accommodate for that and how we can boost their numbers. And it isn't 100%, you know, raising thousands of butterflies. It's planting habitat. No, but I guess I can see everybody else's point of view because, I mean... I don't know if anybody knows, but milkweed is actually poisonous to cattle and horses. Yes. So obviously farmers are not going to want that in their fields. But I think, and I've started seeing it along the highway, that the, um, the states have been kind of leaving that milkweed, butterfly weed alone, So which mm-hmm. is a good start. Yes, I say, especially in Pennsylvania. Uh, common milkweed, which is native in Pennsylvania, where I um, live right now is incredibly uh, like abundant on roadsides and on the highways. Common milkweed is like everywhere, and it's, it's really good to see that. Okay, so do you want to tell us about your experiences raising monarchs? Sure. Um, so my experiences. Uh, so as I as I mentioned. Um, I just kind of got into uh, raising monarchs and and knowing that it was as finding out that it was as easy as planting milkweed and that I would probably get some monarchs in my backyard and have some eggs to raise. And then I accidentally um, ended up also raising swallowtail butterflies at all. And my experience is just, um, it's very positive. It is um, a lot of upkeep. It, it is more upkeep than people imagine. And I, I also think it's very important to know. I, uh, like, I mean, that depends on how many you, you raise. It's important to know that you really shouldn't take in every single egg that you find. Because with the numbers that monarchs uh, specifically lay, they can, what's called egg dumping. Um, you know, you might have a couple a couple plants of milkweed in your yard and they can egg dump. And I mean, all of a sudden you can have 80 some, 90 some eggs and people take in all these eggs because they want to save it all. So they want to save them all. And I totally understand that, but then they don't realize that how much a monarch especially eats a monarch caterpillar. And they are one of the most voracious caterpillars in my experience and um others would agree too um i know your regal moth caterpillars they ate a lot too but um monarchs especially they just uh they just they just eat more they eat more than swallowtail caterpillars and then anything, people have like not yes sorry anything any of the caterpillars i've noticed and as soon as i get to the What's called what whatever the what what's called the um third or even the fourth instar that's when the, that's when they really start chowing down and I noticed that with my regals as well um I would have to change change the leaves more often um yes. as they got bigger but another thing about the monarchs is that only about three percent of eggs laid in the wild will actually survive to become a butterfly right and that's by design. I mean, the monarch butterfly, I mean, I, I'm not saying we shouldn't go save them and everything. And we're, I, I think it's wonderful. Um, but 
when the monarch dumps all those eggs on a milkweed plant, it one of those plants isn't even probably not going to be enough, depending on the size and the species of milkweed plant, isn't going to be enough to sustain one caterpillar throughout their entire larval um, lifespan. So, I mean, that's why it is such a low number. There is predation by other insects when it comes to the egg stage. Um, and then as the larval, uh, as the, the larvae, they, they're humongous the parasitoids, um, the wasps, the there's so many different um, insects that are predaceous to um, monarch caterpillars. It isn't the birds as much as you would think because the monarch caterpillars, because they sequester the toxins from the milkweed, they specifically taste terrible to the birds. I mean, they still get picked, they still get picked up and, and eaten and stuff, but then spit out. But the whole point is what I'm saying is that people don't realize how much they actually eat. And that's, that's why with all the predation and everything that happens and because of how much they eat, yes, only 3% actually make it to the adult butterfly. Now, could you explain OE for, for anybody who doesn't know what that means? The OE? Yes. So on monarchs specifically and queen butterflies, which is like the cousin to the monarch, they um, also eat milkweed. They they can have this protozoan called OE, and that stands for Ophriocystis electroscura. And what that is, is basically, I mean, I can't go into what it is technically, but what it does is... um, you know, that's one of the reasons your, your butterfly doesn't make it. Okay. It can, it can either your, your chrysalis can die. Your, um, it it usually doesn't show up in the chrysalis until like, um, right before, uh, soon after pupation. But as far as it affects caterpillars and what it is, is it's this, this, um, tiny little protozoan that is on the monarch's wings and thorax. And when a mama butterfly or male butterfly lands on milkweed, these spores go everywhere and they land on the milkweed plant. And then when a new hatchling caterpillar um, ingests these spores, depending on how many they ingest, then they have something called OE. Um, So, what this can do is, I mean, it's pretty detrimental as far as it does, it, it, it kills a lot of butterflies. It deforms them. They don't make it to chrysalis stage a lot of times, but there is um, actually a good way to test it in the monarch and butterfly enthusiast um, world. Uh, would you like, would you like me to go into how we test for that? I don't want to just, I, I, I'm, I'm very, um, I'm very aware of over talking. No, I don't. I don't want like this is your. No, I think that gives everybody a uh, a good sense of. Yes. That. And and just because a monarch has this doesn't mean that they they'll die from it. No, it doesn't, and it depends on the load they have too. If they have a very light load, it's still considered. Um, they they could completely look like a perfect monarch. Um, but it is. 
it's it it is uh one of those things that um a lot of monarch enthusiasts they test for it if you have it say it's a it's a good idea like say you have a monarch and it is um and it died or it, it it's very deformed it's a good idea to test that monarch so you can kind of know the cause and i mean it's a simple scotch tape test to the thorax or the abdomen or uh, and um you just put it under one of those inexpensive microscopes and and i'm talking very inexpensive and you can see the spores next to the scales um, on the tape test. And I mean, you can kind of see the difference between a huge load and, and a light load. And when it's a huge load, then you kind of have to wonder because unfortunately that's something that can spread throughout your whole habitat. Um, if you're raising in an enclosure, it's that's that's why it's also important to test when we raise in enclosures. Because um, if one of your butterflies has a heavy load of OE, uh, and it, and it made its way to a butterfly. Now it's a butterfly. It, it came out. It's um, in your enclosure, right? And it hasn't been released yet. It's been a couple hours. Well, all those OE spores have now gone um, all over your entire enclosure. And if they landed on, say, milkweed plants, because you still have caterpillars in there um, munching on milkweed, which you really shouldn't have e-closing butterflies over munching caterpillars by the way but like say it does like now all your caterpillars could be infected with oe so it's one of those very important things that it's good to know if you have a if you have one butterfly with oe you should test a lot of them and then if you have a a widespread scale in your enclosure then it's important to um clean your enclosure with bleach uh, with a, a recommended amount of, it's it's a specific, I mean, you can look it up anywhere. It's like a, a specific uh, amount of bleach to water. It needs to soak for so long. And that's the only way you can get rid of it. And you can also um, bleach leaves and eggs also to um, that you bring in. Uh, yes. It's like 15, to, 15 or 20 to 1 right. bleach to water. It's, it really depends on what kind of bleach. So you can right. only use the regular and. Um, yes. And and these things are are super easy to look on online too. Just because we haven't given the exact specifics, I know some bleaches aren't aren't okay. Um, but like you said, it has to be like the regular bleach. But um, you can you can really you can look that up on a lot of good monarchs. They'll tell you how to bleach eggs if you just search how to bleach your plants and eggs. Now, some areas it's important to know that aren't 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 really as at risk for OE. Um, southern states, especially Florida, huge risk for OE. And they have them kind of, it, it, it's like, a, it's one of the biggest detrimental things down in Florida at, to Florida monarchs. Um, like I said, it doesn't mean they're going to die, but uh, it's one of those things that is bad if it's spread all over. And that also has to do with, um, in Florida, what is native to them is actually tropical milkweed. In Florida, you don't have perennial milkweed because it's warm all year round. So you have tropical milkweed. And um, it's important that if you're in Florida or one of the high OE states, that you should actually um, cut down your milkweed once or twice a year and let it regrow. Because if it is infected with OE and, and, and you don't bleach your plants, or if you do bleach your plants, 
it's it's just important. Like when you live up north and you have perennial milkweed, well, at the end of the season, it dies. Then it's going to regrow and it's not going to have OE on it. Um, right. In my, in my experience, I've in like the past uh, four years of me doing this and testing butterflies. And again, this is specific to monarch and queen butterflies. Um, other butterflies don't get this. Okay, so you you don't have to worry about OE. There are tons of things you can worry about, but OE is specific to milkweed butterflies. Um, I've only come across maybe four butterflies that had OE, and they were pretty light load. Um, one of wow. my very yes, and one of my very um, deformed butterflies. And we're talking like maybe he didn't get out of the chrysalis all the way, and I helped him. But I mean that's that's the whole point because he's sick. OE can make them sick and weakened and not a hundred percent. And, um, was completely, uh, you know, because he was deformed, I definitely wanted to test him. And again, testing doesn't hurt the butterfly. And when you do it correctly, you don't injure them or anything like that. Um, and you do a quick test and then you find out and yes, he was actually pretty loaded, but he was the only one. And I took the proper precautions. It's pretty much common, um, in the enthusiast world to, um, bleach your enclosures from brood to brood. Anyway, you don't usually reuse the same enclosure without giving it a, a thorough disinfection. Um, because you know, one group could have it and the other couldn't, and you don't want to transfer that. And, and now I think I want to cover a kind of a sad topic. Um, oh, let's have to do this. <laughs> um, <laughs> euthanizing a sick or, um, or dying butterfly or caterpillar. Yeah. How, how do you handle that? I know different people have different methods. Yes. So um, I choose the freezer method. I choose the freezer method because, first of all, I, I think it's important that we do address the topic that do butterflies feel pain? Well, the truth is, is that it was always thought that they didn't because of their nervous system and whatnot. But more recent journal studies have actually shown that it may not be pain, but that they show like on being uncomfortable and um, avoidance for uncomfortable, it, it, we, can't, we can't measure if they feel actual pain because butterflies don't scream, you know, that sort of thing. It's not comparable to a mammal or a pet or anything like that. But so it, it's important that we handle euthanasia in, in a way that we uh, address in case they do feel some discomfort or pain, even though the jury is out on that, even though, but more recent studies, it's important to know that recent studies do show that butterflies feel a little more than we think and do show, you know, being uncomfortable. Um, so I choose the freezer method and you can also choose to put the butterfly in the fridge first to, and what it does is a, a colder climate will calm the butterfly down and start to slow them down because butterflies are not active um, in cooler climates. In fact, when you release your butterfly, it's important that it should be at least 55 degrees Fahrenheit outside. If it's cooler than that, then you don't want to release the butterfly yet because he's not going to be able to fly um, 
in a, he's he probably won't be very active or fly much at all. Um, it's an they they really slow down in cold temperatures. So some people put them in the fridge for a little while just to calm them down and get them kind of used to the cold, and then they stick them in the freezer. And it's pretty much in a non scientific way what's known in the community. It just basically puts them to sleep. They get so cold, and and it's not supposed to be uncomfortable, but they do get so cold that they um, just go to sleep, and they never wake up. Um, And that is what's viewed as the humane way to euthanize butterfly. Um, I also know people that in the community that that do the, the quick stomp method, and while it is 100%, uh, I would say it is, uh, well, it's humane because it's very quick. It is literally done in an instant, and that's it. But that's, that's, uh, that's too much for me to handle. I can't, I can't take that way. Um, and, but I do not judge anybody else. But those are the two recommended methods um, that I know of, unless you know a different uh, method, Monica, uh, no, I've only, right I've only ever had to, I've only ever had to do it once, and that was the freezer method. And let me just say it's, it's definitely hard to do, even that to kill another he- a living thing. It's it's difficult, but you know it's for the best of the population. You don't want you don't want bad genes spreading. But. And now I think we should talk about the different stages of the monarch or for any, for any butterfly or moth, there comes, there's five stages of caterpillar mm-hmm. and then for, for butterflies, there's a chrysalis yes. and then for, for, um, moths, there's a chrysalis and a cocoon. Right. So for moths, it's cocoon. No, moths actually, are... let yep. me stop you right there. Some actually do both. Um, really? So, Cecropia's. Um, Cecropias, um, what else do the Polyphemus and the Lunas all make their cocoon first. And then once they're inside, they'll start pupating and make the chrysalis. Really? I did not know that. But moths, like the ones I'm rearing now, the um, Hickory Horn Devils or the Regal Moths, they pupate underground. So they need... Either layers of paper towel, which is what I'm using, or dirt, or something that they can actually bury themselves into to pupate. Okay. Um, so, yes. Generally speaking, for, for if we were to educate uh, the general population who didn't know, it would, it would, be, it would be awesome if, if basically, um, you know, people knew the difference that Generally speaking, moths do cocoons and butterflies do chrysalises. Although you have um, stated some exceptions that do both, but um, I think a lot of people use those words interchangeably. And which why which is actually it, not correct. They are not interchangeable. Exactly, um. because a, a butterfly actually becomes the chrysalis when they pupate and they go into the prepupa and then um, pupa stage. That actually, they shed their skin and they are the chrysalis. It's almost like a, it, it, it's, it's the shape 
of what they're going to become. It, it's like actually an outline of wings and, and you know. Um, yeah, they, they turn into a liquid. Yeah, They liquefy, which is. It's almost like a primordial to think about. Yes. But in inside, yes, absolutely. In the outside is their, you know, is the chrysalis, but they are the chrysalis. With a moth, they actually, well, go ahead, because you, you do moths, uh, it, besides the exceptions, um, moths, when they form a cocoon, they don't become the cocoon. They so spin. I'll tell you about a story. I was raising cecropia moths last mm -hmm. year, which are North America's biggest moth. They're very bright red. Um, and I can always post a link to, to photos for anybody that wants to see any of my moth work. Um, but I got to witness one actually making its cocoon last year. So, again, moths and butterflies, they, they go through five different stages of caterpillar. So, yeah. they, so the butterfly or moth will lay the egg on a host plant. Like, for cecropias, they... I can't think off the top of my head of any of, of any of their host plants right now, except for walnut, which I didn't feed them. I, you know what? I fed them black cherry last year. So yes, they is have. Oak, is like, oak one of them? I, I want to say oak, oak or maple. I don't believe either of those are, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. Um, but anyway, so they they hatch on the leaf, and they're like. Maybe half the size of your pinky fingernail when they're when they're hat when they hatch. Well, I guess that that's that's your cecropia moths. Uh, you know, monarchs are like super tiny when they hatch. Yeah, it really depends on the species. But anyway, right. so I, actually, I should back myself up and talk about the proper terms. So hatch right. is hatch is for when a caterpillar comes out of the egg. Correct, and then like every week or something it really depends on the species but from mine they grew they molted and changed once a week and got bigger each time so at each stage of growth is called an instar right as in I, or in my group they call it l1 through l5 which just basically means larva one through mm -hmm. larva five right they're so, just the stages in between molting and so when they're molting, they'll stop eating. They'll usually wander off by themselves and just stay still. So you'll see them still for like a day or two. So don't worry. Don't mess with them because they have attached their silk and they are shedding their exoskeleton to, to, to get bigger. So that's very important not to disturb them whatsoever. Yes, you can ultimately cause their death if you disturb them during uh, molting. So, like I said, they'll go through five different stages. Um, starting in star one, starting from their hatching. As soon as they come out of that egg, that's in star one. Correct. And then they'll just get bigger and bigger. Some species get to be the size of your hand. Like the regals. I'm, um, the I'm regals are like, are they the biggest caterpillar? They actually might be the biggest caterpillar. At I don't least know. in North they're not, America. They're not the biggest moth. They are no, the, they're not the biggest moth, but the, the caterpillars I, right now if, at, in Star Five are about the size of my hand. Um, they're very, very. I, I, I want to say, yeah, I don't know off the top of my head, but I'm pretty sure they're one of the biggest, if not the biggest, at least in North America. 
So anyway, so I got to see one of my Sucropias last year make his cocoon. So I had a whole bunch of um, leaves in, in the enclosure, and I knew they were getting to that point. I couldn't tell quite when they were going to do it, but I was out taking pictures. I had taken them out, and I was photographing them. And one of them, it kept pulling back on the leaves with its um, with its front feet, and I could see silk coming out silk coming out from its butt and it was actually weave it was actually pulling the leaf up and then weaving it with the silk so it was tying everything together with the silk coming out of it correct which was amazing i mean they are silk silk moths for a reason right but i got to see him starting his chrysalis and seeing him con- contort his body so now these these three or four inch caterpillars are bending themselves in half yeah in this cocoon it's really amazing. It and is once, amazing. And then once that cocoon hardens, they will start to form that um, the chrysalis inside. And then certain, a lot of the moths, um, you actually have to overwinter. They they will come out in the spring and then begin the cycle all over. So it's important for that that you keep them out in the cold so that they don't come out in the middle of winter in your house. Right, right, and in a, in uh, amongst the community, one of those uh, methods would be to stick them in a refrigerator, a non-fluctuating refrigerator, particularly one that you can rely on. That's not going to go, but um, a lot of people do that. I, I've done that with my swallowtails. It depends. Uh, swallowtails can have a diapause if they're the generation that is right before the weather gets cold. Um, normally swallowtails are like, you know, a couple weeks in a chrysalis and boom. But if it's at the end, then they will go into diapause and you will need to overwinter them or they overwinter in nature also. So monarchs are not like that. Do you want to explain? Correct. Yeah. So monarchs, they don't overwinter. Um, because monarchs actually, now it depends on the generation, but, um, and it depends on your area, but something like the fifth generation or the end generation is actually the migratory generation. And these monarchs are going to fly all the way down to Mexico. Um, and that is where they hold up in a tree through the winter. Of course, it's not really, it's not really cold down there, but, um, they hold up in a tree. If you've ever seen Monica, I'm sure you have like pictures and videos of um, down in Mexico where the monarchs are, uh, where they migrate to. And it's just like trees upon trees of just wings. You just see so many. They're just like, it's like a tree made of wings, basically. It's just like thousands and thousands of monarchs all like just aligned on the tree. Um, and then they, uh, then they lay eggs, not right. Then they wait until the, um, winter is over, I believe. And then they lay their eggs. And then that's the first generation to start, um, coming back up in the spring. Sounds amazing. I mean, I've, I've seen a few migrations of monarchs in my time and, uh, 
definitely, I mean, there's a lot of butterflies, but nothing yeah. like you'll see in Mexico for sure. Oh my goodness. It, it's quite an amazing sight. You just, there, there is, um, there are places down in Mexico you can go and observe that kind of thing. And it's just, it, it's amazing. They show the, and then they show the pictures of not even them being held up in the tree to the area where they come. And you're just looking up in the sky and it's just, it's a sky full of monarch butterflies. It's like, it's almost like a swarm. It's like, if you imagine like a, a, a swarm of butterflies, it's so many butterflies just everywhere in the air coming. Um, it's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing that monarchs typically last like a lot of butterflies. Um, I don't know specifically for moths. You would know more for that. But a lot of butterflies, they only have about a two to three week lifespan. Of course, unless they go into diapause in your chrysalis. But at the end, the migratory monarch has a longer lifespan, obviously, because um, he or she flies all the way to Mexico and holds up throughout the season until it's time to come back up. The but they don't, they don't make those those butterflies that go all the way to Mexico. They're not the ones that come back up for spring. They come to Mexico. They hold up all um, throughout the season. And then when it's time, then they lay their eggs and then they perish. And then the hatchlings from their eggs, that is the first generation of the whole monarch generation cycle all over again. And then they start to make their way up north again. So moths are a little bit different. Moths, the larger silk moths are about a week. And the reason is, the, like the lunas, the cecropias, the polyphemus, mm -hmm. they don't have mouths. So they do not feed. Their whole purpose is to yes. emerge, mate, reproduce, lay more eggs, and then they will jump, and then they will unfortunately die. But That's just other, like the cicadas. Other moths, like the sphinx moths, or you've seen hummingbird moths. Yes, their lifespan I think is a little bit lo longer. Don't don't quote me on that because I haven't raised them. Um, but they do have mouths, so you'll see them suck eating at, eating the nectar out of your um, flowers. Right, but there are, like you said, there are the ones that they don't even their whole their whole point when they become their the moth is to mate and pass on their genetics, and that's it. Just like cicadas, the periodical cicadas, when they come up, after 17 years being underground, they come up and they basically just mate and die. It's unfortunate. It is, but that's life for you. <laughs> so do you want to talk about how to tell if a moth or a caterpillar is ready to pupate? Yes. So um, what... Now, this happens... It, it happens slightly differently um, from butterfly to butterfly species. But generally speaking, when a caterpillar of a butterfly is ready to pupate, um, and again, I'll just speak for butterflies because I haven't had the opportunity to raise specifically moths, but when it comes to butterflies, um, now, of course, they need to be in fifth instar. So if you have a caterpillar that is, looking to pupate and they're in fourth instar, well, it's not going to make it, okay? It, that, there are times that um, caterpillars do hang, J-hang to pupate, or they look like they're going to pupate, but if they're not in fifth instar, that's not going to happen. So if we're in fifth instar and we've been there, when they are ready to pupate, they're going to go on a walkabout, okay? They're going to 
you probably haven't seen your caterpillar be this active ever in its life. And then all of a sudden, if you have them in an enclosure or if you're just observing them in nature, they're going to be on a walkabout. And usually it's away from their host plant. It isn't necessarily on their host plant. Um, people will find monarch caterpillars way far away from their milkweed. And that's because they're looking for a perfect place to pupate. Um, you they want to walk about and sometimes it's a day, a day and a half, two days until they find the perfect spot. And what that looks like in your enclosure is pretty much, and I'm sure you can confirm this, pretty much a caterpillar in an enclosure or however you raise it, it's basically eating, it's going to the bathroom, and then it's, um, and then there are times it stops eating just to molt. But if it's not, it's on a leave and it's eating, okay? Or it's molting. Um, all of a sudden, it won't be interested in eating anymore, and it will be walking around your enclosure very, very quickly, by the way. It's, um, and they'll just make laps, and they'll be just looking around, looking around. And in nature, that's where you'll find the caterpillar moving a lot quicker than you've ever seen them move before, just looking randomly, going across the grass, on different host plants, wherever, trying to find that perfect place to pupate. Um, and then, as you know, you go into pupa, um, it goes into pre -pupa. Don't get the silk button. They will, they will attach a silk button. Yes. And that's pre-pupa. Yes. They start to attach their silk button. Exactly. And then um, depending on the species of butterfly, uh, they might, like for monarchs, they J-hang. They, um, they hang it from their, um, from their butt. When they attach the silk button, they walk their back bottoms back towards the button, they attach, and then they hang, and it looks like a J. Uh, swallowtails, they don't necessarily look like a J, but that's pre-pupa. And then when they start to actually um, go into chrysalis, that's, that's, also, that's called your pupa stage. Awesome. So ma let me talk about moths a yes. little bit. I, honestly, the only one I really know how, it, how to tell whether it'll be um, going into a pupa is the regal moths, aka the hickory horned devils that I'm raising right now. Um, I just started raising moths last year, so I'm still learning a lot about them. And cecropias, I couldn't, I didn't know enough to, how to tell. Other than that, I saw it actually making the chrysalis or the cocoon. There you go. But regals are a little bit different. Regals, they change color drastically. So they yes. start out as little black, basically little black caterpillars with um, with spike, little tiny spikes on them. And then they'll gradually get lighter. The second and third inch stars, they'll be brown and they'll start to have some pattering, patter, patterns on their sides, almost look like little eyes. And then once they get bigger, they start turning green, like a green and yellow. The final inch star, just before they're about to pupate, they turn blue. I actually just had one turn blue today. Um, Amazing. And one of the things to look out for, so caterpillars don't have a heart per se like us. They have a lifeline that runs down their back, the center of their body. And if you're looking at their backside, you can actually see it down their back. So for regals, you want to look at that. If it's pulsing, like, it, it, like I mean, if, it, if it's moving... It means it's getting closer to pupating, and that's when you want to separate it out and put it out, put it in um, some layers of dirt or paper towels or whatever. And then the, the caterpillar, 
caterpillar caterpillar if i can help if i can talk we'll tell you when it's ready like i like jamie said it'll stop eating and it'll start wandering around it'll be looking for something it'll and in the case of the burrowing moths like um regals and sphinxes they will be digging like per se they they will be trying to claw their way into something um so in my case mine went down to the very bottom of the container and that's um, how you knew well i knew before when it was turning blue so i that's why right. i separated it out um but that's about but they don't but now you can clarify they they don't go down to the bottom do they go to the bottom of the container otherwise it's only when they are looking to pupate um, they'll attach themselves to leaves if they're not ready to pupate. They'll eat and, uh, but right. this one was showing no interest. He just wanted to walk around. So that's kind of the case. That's how you knew. Yeah. 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 Well, now I, I have to mention with swallowtail butterflies or for swallowtail caterpillars, rather, a very interesting thing with them is right before they pupate, they purge. It's called purging. And they empty the entire contents of their stomachs out. And it, um, and you can also tell that a, a caterpillar is getting ready to pupate and go on their walkabout when you see the purge. And you'll know it when you see it in an enclosure. It's, it's, it's pretty, it's, it's a big amount of defecation um, of frass from your caterpillar. It's huge. And then you're like, oh, that's it. They purge. They empty all their stomach contents, and then they go on their walkabout looking for pupation. Monarchs don't do that. But yeah, these that's guys, another the fun thing are swallowtails. The moths are supposed to do that, but I haven't seen it out of this one yet. So I'll keep, I'll keep checking. And, and it takes a little bit longer than it does for a butterfly to pupate. Um, judging by what I was talking to, I was talking to an expert on this, and they said they'll, for, they'll rest for a while. And then they'll shed their skin, and once it, and then their their chrysalis will harden, and that usually happens over a few days. Um, so at this point, the purge could happen tomorrow, but that's all I know on this on this subject anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to add. Um, no, if, and, but anything it, it's important? It's a well. I would say for the first. For someone who was just getting into raising butterflies or moths, um, for butterflies specifically, um, when they form their chrysalis, they're they're extremely vulnerable for 24 to 48 hours. Meaning, say you want to move their chrysalis to somewhere else because maybe they formed a chrysalis on a zipper or... On the inside of your enclosure, or maybe it's on top of another chrysalis, which they've done before. Swallowtails do, or maybe it's just it's it's a very inconvenient area, and you're worried about their safety. It is important not to touch that chrysalis until it hardens. Um, uh, and it, it might be different for moths because I know I saw the videos of you handling the moths in their um, chrysalis. It looked like they're it looked like a freshly formed chrys or cocoon rather, and it was. Uh, it was fine. But with um, swallowtails specifically and monarchs, you don't want to touch those chrysalises. After a day or two, they will, they're not impenetrable. You, you still can damage them, but it, they're hardened and it's safe to detach them 
however you do and move them if you decide to do that. Do, but a good rule of thumb for butterflies and for the specific ones I'm talking about, again, it could be different for moths, is not to touch uh, the pupa stage for at least after they fully form their chrysalis, give it two days because um, we've all had accidents where we accidentally bumped that chrysalis that just formed. And unfortunately, like you said, it's just a bunch of goo in there and the outside is soft. It's very, very soft. So if they fall, they will damage. And then uh, it, they'll be leaking hemolymph, um, which is basically like it's the fluid that caterpillars pump through their bodies because they don't have blood. They have hemolymph instead. It's, it's it's pretty much depending how bad how bad they fall but it's almost a lot of times it's fatal it's it's really hard to come back from that so if you're thinking of moving your chrysalis or you see a chrysalis in nature and you just give it a very light touch if it's still moist or very very soft leave it alone leave it alone for two days and a good rule of thumb is to just try and keep the other caterpillars away from it because yes caterpillars are very curious they will yes. climb on top of each other and in certain cases they have been known to take nibbles out of the other chrysalises exactly chrysalis. and this happens because a chrysalis is going to smell like well it depends on what it's eating but it's it's going to taste like it's going to smell like a host plant um from what i've heard they smell like monarch chrysalises they smell just like milkweed and if you have caterpillars in your enclosure that are maybe um, curious, maybe maybe you don't have a lot of food in your enclosure right now, and they're looking for food, they're going to see the chrysalis, and, and, it, and it, it's going to smell like milkweed, and they might take a nibble, and then they'll be like, oh, this isn't, this isn't what I'm looking for, but the damage might be done at the time. And usually these cases, though, Monica, it's important to know that these cases where um, the other caterpillars are walking on them, um, because caterpillars have these tiny well monarchs specifically have these tiny little hooks on the bottom of their feet um and when they walk across a freshly pupated chrysalis they actually make these tears in the chrysalis and again bacteria can get in even if it's not enough to cause any kind of fluid loss bacteria can get in and you know your your butterfly will never happen so it, it in these cases, though, what happens is usually if you have an overcrowded enclosure, if you have too many caterpillars in there, um, then that those are the times where they're sometimes they're just on their walkabout, right? They're just they're just looking for a place to pupate. But because everything's so crowded, yeah, they'll walk over a freshly melted chrysalis, and um, and then there are times where they're not ready to pupate yet but they're hungry or it, they're just curious and it smells like their host plant and they take a bite. Um, a lot of these times it's because people have overcrowded enclosures. So it's important to not have too many in a specific closure according to how big your enclosure is. Um, overcrowded enclosures and not having an adequate food supply because in nature, that's, that's not really what happens. Um, pretty much when it comes down to... By the time the caterpillars that are going to survive, survive up to fifth instar, there's not nearly as many because a lot of them have been picked off with predation. So then they're there and, and, and um, 
if there wasn't enough food to go around, the other ones have already died off. When it's an enclosure, you know, you have all these caterpillars that have been given the best chance at life and they've been given, they've been protected from predation and they've been, maybe their, their leaves have been bleached and all that stuff and, and they have the best shot. But now you have all these caterpillars in an enclosure. And you know also, what I mean? Yeah, and also to make sure that you have them in a um, a container or a con- whatever the term is, whatever um, that they can climb up on and oh yeah, like in a on. like a parasitoid proof mesh enclosure. Yes. I don't mean that. I don't mean just like that, but don't put them. Oh in yes, a, when, especially when they're closer to becoming um, a chrysalis. Don't have them in a glass or plastic container. Because if that butterfly fall, if that butterfly falls out of the uh, chrys- comes out of the chrysalis and falls, it's it not going to have anything to. It's not going to have anything on. to climb up to, and that'll You're... lead and that'll lead to wing deformities. Exactly, and just like you you said, like uh, a caterpillar, they can climb up a glass enclosure, the inside of a glass, no problem. But when they form into a butterfly, their feet are completely different, and it's a lot harder. Butterflies can climb up mesh enclosures. But they can't, uh, they can't scale glass. They can't scale plastic. So it's important. You're right. It, it, yeah, maybe it made its chrysalis in the, in, in your big mason jar. And, and that's all well and good, but it needs to not, it shouldn't be like that when it e-closes. Correct. Because, oh, like you said, because when they e-close, also probably a good thing to mention, when they close or emerge from their cocoon or chrysalis, depending on what species, it's important to note that their wings are going to be way smaller, okay? And that's because their abdomen is full of this fluid, and this fluid gets pumped from their abdomen to their wings. It almost, it, it's like inflating their wings. It they inflate their wings with fluid. And right when they first emerge from their chrysalis or cocoon, that's when their wings are very soft and malleable. And they need to dry, in a sense, and be pumped with fluid and then dry. In that time, if, say, they fall, and um, it, once they start pumping their wings, there's no turning back from that. If, say, they fell into a glass or they fell into the side or, say, underneath a paper towel or in the corner of a tank and couldn't right themselves to where they could spread out their wings, then, unfortunately, their wings will dry like that. There's nothing you can do. People are always like, can I do something? Like, if their wings are fully dried, there's nothing you can do. You can't iron the butterfly's wings straight. If it has a crease, because it had a crease when it was super soft and malleable and was um, being pumped with fluid, that's so that's another crucial thing. That's why you shouldn't really let um, butterflies come out of their chrysalis or cocoon in, in a jar. That's also a good, uh, a good rule of thumb. Because if they don't have enough room to expand their wings then that can absolutely lead to wing deformities. So I'm glad we mentioned that too. Unfortunately, sometimes people don't see, if they have butterflies in enclosures, they don't see when they come out of their chrysalis. And unfortunately, they come out and maybe they were weak or maybe they just got stuck or something happened where they came out and they fell and they couldn't find an area to climb onto. And they ended up uh, pumping their wings on the bottom 
and it's just not enough room or it, it's not conducive to their wings um, being inflated with inflated is probably not the word to use for liquid, but, but you know what I'm trying to say uh, with the liquid. And if they don't have the room and then once their butter, once their wings are dry, that's it, unfortunately. And if they can't fly, well, then they can't fly. That's the whole point, right? To release right. the butterfly or moth so they can fly and enjoy the rest of their lives. And there are other predators out there. Stink bugs. Um, yes. Assassin tachnid, bugs. Tachnid flies will yes. um, lay their eggs in the caterpillar. It's all and, part of the ecosystem. That's and, they, and, and unfortunately, the, the caterpillar may, will, will probably pu may pupate and yes. you'll see a tiny little string hanging down. Yes. And that's the escape rope that the tachnid larva used to get yes. out. So if you see that, it's important to get yes. that chrysalis down and away from everything else and squish it. Because that cat, that chrysalid is no longer alive. Yes. Yeah. Well, it, now, let me just say, if you, if that is your, if you, if you want to, we, we can't, I, we, I don't want to push it on people that they need to squish it. Um, because... There are people out there that believe that, you know, well, a technic fly is part of the ecosystem. So, um, I don't mean squashing. Well, I mean, well, I mean oh, yes. Well, chrysalid right, because right. It is no chrysalid, longer alive. You're right. Yes, yes, yes. Because I know people are very quick to, to squish anything that is, oh, okay, I'll give you an example. For swallowtail butterflies, one of the common parasitoids, parasitoids is the trogus penetrator, penetrator. Penator wasp. Sorry, I get all excited and I speak super quick. But um, so that wasp, it lays an egg inside um, of the caterpillar, okay? Uh, when the caterpillar is in the larval stage. Then the caterpillar goes, and it's only one singular egg, and then a caterpillar goes and makes its chrysalis. And then at about the time you're expecting your swallowtail to come out, instead, there's a hole in the chrysalis, and this very cute red-looking wasp comes out instead. Um, and that is how, now, Trogus penetrator, it's uh, actually the Ichinomen wasp. Oh, sorry for butchering that. But um, they're specific for swallowtails. And I know a lot of people are so quick to euthanize. They're like, oh, this my it it ate my swallowtail now my swallowtail isn't coming out so this wasp is getting it well i mean like you you're the same way you know as far as the environment and the ecosystem a wasp is a pollinator and it really sucks don't get me wrong it sucks you were expecting a swallowtail and unfortunately you collected this caterpillar from outside you had no idea that that a wasp laid an egg in it and then when it went to pupate instead the wasp larva grew up and ate everything and then the wasp comes out um and i'm kind of actually to be honest i'm the way with tachnid flies um tachnid flies there's a there's a reason they're here i'm sorry i know people are against this but it's not they don't just prey on our our precious monarchs or or the other uh really rare 
um, caterpillars that we love, they, they also prey on the caterpillars that are so numerous, they would affect and destroy the ecosystem if there wasn't a balance in place. And that's what tachnid flies are for. That's what they do. Yes, they lay eggs actually on the larva. And then it's, and they're very, very tiny and they're very hard to see. And then as soon as those eggs hatch, they burrow into um, the larva and they keep their host alive. They eat not important parts inside them and keep their host alive. And then the host will usually not even show any signs until fifth instar or uh, pre-pupa or chrysalis. And you'll see it's the same thing. It's it's if it's a caterpillar, it's a deflated caterpillar, and it just like you said, it's that string coming down, and that is the escape route for the tachnid fly larva. But like I said, right? I'm glad we cleared that up because um, yes, you would want to euthanize the chrysalis at that point if if you know whether however you feel about parasitoids, but. The chrysalis isn't viable at that point. Yes, you're 100% right. So, yes, then euthanizing that chrysalis is, yes. But, I, I mean, I there's a whole bunch of, there's, um, there's calcid wasps that also target uh, butterfly chrysalises. They actually lay in freshly formed chrysalises. There's ones that, you know, lay them on the caterpillar. There's ones that... Uh, oviposit inside the caterpillar it's all these things you know you, you take there there what i'm saying is there's reasons for the tachnid flying there's reasons for the other parasitoids unfortunately people and and that's why i know you mentioned that this is such a good idea to have this podcast because you want people to have that appreciation for nature right exactly it's it's, it's the raising butterflies or moths is like the entryway and then you appreciate everything else. You appreciate that that bug. Um, I think people are too quick to go around. They start raising monarchs and they go around in their garden and they kill all the wasps they see because they say, oh, these wasps are going to get my monarch caterpillars. And I need to make sure my monarch caterpillars, they make it to butterflies. So they go around with zappers and they kill them or they net them and they kill them. And, you know, especially... If for the trogus penetrator, it's like, it's a one per one ratio. It's only one. And, and you're expecting a swallowtail and this one little wasp comes out. And guess what? This wasp also can't sting you. And he's actually a native pollinator. So, I mean, gosh, let that wasp live. I mean, he has, there's a reason he's here. There's a reason tachnids, you know, the spotted lanternfly. There's not a good reason they're here. That's different, okay? We're not, we're not, but when, I mean, geez, they're native, right? But native? I would love to see one of those. I just have to say, I want to oh see. Oh my gosh, are they not the prettiest thing? They're super detrimental, and it's it's bad that they're here. But, you know, let me just say that. And it's a big, and if you do see one, it's very important that you report it. You report it, and unfortunately, um, the extensions for your state do recommend that you euthanize them as well. But it's also important that you report them because they are super detrimental. They are destroying parts of the ecosystem. They do not have a natural predator. They do have some predator, like mantises will eat them, but they don't have the, the predator to keep them in check. 
and they are not native. And not to say all not native, you know, bugs are bad. But for this, and not to get off on a tangent, but yes, they are beautiful. They're like little Dalmatians. They they have the black and white spots on their wings, and then the red part of their wings. They're actually very beautiful. And even like the nymphs, they're beautiful. But again, I think, I, well, not again, but I think we should, um, I think that's something we could have another episode yeah, for. Just absolutely. Insects in general. How do you feel about that? Oh, I love that. Yes, absolutely. It's good. It's kind of like we left a teaser. <laughs> All right. So hopefully everybody learned at least one <laughs> thing from this podcast. Yes. And, uh, and if you're interested in, in learning, uh, you know, about insects and stuff like that, I mean, gosh. We, I will attach both of our contact, both of our Instagrams or uh, whatever on the um, in the description of the podcast, and you can reach out with any questions. Yes, absolutely. Um, you're not going to see much of a, a following or uh, an insect presence on my Instagram, but I'm happy to answer any questions that I can. I am super passionate. Um, well, about... you'll just have to you'll just have to fix that, won't you? You'll just have to update it. <laughs> right, I'm super passionate about conservation and and just bugs, insects, spiders, all that in general. And I love having that, like I said, that gateway experience that I appreciate everything so much more because I raise um, caterpillars, because I raise the butterflies, and it's it's a great way to segue into other parts of nature, and then you can get passionate about everything else. And figure out what you really, you know, what you really love. Oh, yeah, definitely. Oh, for sure. Well, thank you so much for having me on here, Monica. Thank you for having this uh, nice conversation with me. <laughs> I, I, I actually learned stuff from you that I didn't know about swallowtails, for sure. And Yeah, and I learned stuff from you. Like, I really had no idea that some moths make a chrysalis inside of their cocoon. Like, What? I, you said that, and I was like, "No, no." I actually I don't have. Think. I um. So one last thing before we go. Um. So it is safe to open a, a open a cocoon. Um. So they say leave the co- they say leave the cocoons and chrysalids outside until May first at the earliest, mm-hmm. and then it's it's safe enough to open the cocoon after that date because they will be emerging soon. But I did get a vid. I did um, get a video of opening the chrysal, uh, opening the cocoon, and seeing the chrysalis. So I do have tangible proof. But oh wow, that's awesome! Oh well, you're, you're talking about the species that do both, right? The Correct. chrysalis and the co- right, this right. Don't go, don't go around here. opening chrysalises of butterflies. Don't don't do that. <laughs> you will kill them. But but with these ones, yes, that is awesome. And I know you would. I know, and you wouldn't speak of anything on here unless you had tangible proof unless you were um very fully informed on that so i know you're not oh, spreading yeah. lies <laughs> just remember don't open a chrysalis don't open, open, a chrysalis. open the cocoon that looks like um dried leafy material if you're sure that they're one of the moths that do both right because i would say it would probably be detrimental for a moth that just regularly spins a cocoon and doesn't have a chrysalis inside yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure. probably. <laughs> there are exceptions. Just Google it. But again, thank you for joining me tonight. And uh, thank I you for having, to having me, you on again. Absolutely. Uh, bye, guys. I hope you have tune good, in soon. Have a good bye. night. Bye.